Peace. Welcome to another episode of Bootstraps. I'm your host, Anefriesian. For those of you that are new to the podcast, please be sure to subscribe. And if you're on Instagram, please go on over and give us a follow at Bootstraps Podcast. So this episode with his brother Aaron Dean is going to be a really compelling story. For me, it particularly highlights the nuance of what it means to be a black man and how you can't just put us in a box and how if you're going to be involved in doing youth development, especially working with inner city black males, you need to be able to look beyond the surface. And you'll see what I mean as you get into the details of this episode but I, I remember from my youth development days when I used to work in schools and in after school programs, oftentimes there was this negative stigma around sports, in particular football and basketball and activities that were really popular in inner city communities. But I think if you look beyond that, you can see in these young black boys someone who plays football but someone who's also into all of these other things it's like football in and of itself is not a bad thing and in fact there's probably a lot of positives in it same thing for basketball or track and field whatever it may be that is um, the popular cultural pastime in the community instead of coming in trying to push your views on folks like meet the kids where they're at get to understand their hopes and dreams and what their life is like and then give them some tools and opportunities uh, to be able to grow beyond the circumstances they were born into so in, in this story with Aaron you know it's about as stereotypical as one could think when you look at it on the surface young black boy living in inner city LA literally having to walk between a blood neighborhood and a crip neighborhood every single day as he navigates high school that also was he was also a football player but in there there was so much more so much more nuance uh, to this young man and he was able to leverage football and leverage his athletic abilities to be his ticket out but he actually then was smart enough to use it as his ticket he didn't put all his hopes and dreams into it and he's been able to build himself into an amazing man that's doing really great things in this world so I'll let you guys get his story from him in the first hand account I'm not gonna keep uh, giving you spoilers let's get into it Peace. Welcome to another episode of Bootstraps. Brother, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and let everybody know what you do. Yeah, yeah, we'll do. Hey, everyone. My name is Aaron Dean, and I am a North American brand manager at Ubisoft. And Ubisoft is basically one of the largest video game publishers in America. So we make titles such as Assassin's Creed, Ghost Recon, um, you know, a bunch of other high-profile games. That's what's up. And, uh, like... 
what 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 is it about gaming that attracts you in particular? Because I mean, I'm going to make an ignorant assumption out loud on air. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I would assume there's not a lot of black men in the gaming industry. Yeah, no, that's that's actually spot on. Um, and it's been it's been an interesting evolution for me as I've made my um, you know, way in different companies and different positions within gaming. And the higher I get, the less and less um, you know diversity that you see. And so um, that's that's absolutely the truth. But for me. I've been a gamer for as long as I can remember, definitely high school days. So um, getting into games and ultimately coming upon the realization that I can actually get paid for doing something that I'm passionate about. It was, it was a, it was a no, a no brainer for me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, that, that makes sense. That's like the Holy grail, right? To like make money for doing what you love and you never really have to work a day in your life. Yeah. Yeah. What was, uh, so you say you've been a gamer for a minute. What was like your favorite game just to play? Of all time. So the first game that really captured my imagination and the sheer, um, you know, fantasy element that games offer was a game called Final Fantasy VII. Uh, okay. And it came out on the PlayStation and it was on four discs, which was unheard of at the time. And so it was a massive game. It took me maybe, I don't know, like th- three weeks of me solid playing it every day to, to finish it. But it was the first narrative from a, a video game that had me invested about the characters, um, eager to, to to just to play more and more and understand where the story was going. And I didn't I didn't really get that prior to that moment in terms of um, the the sheer engagement that you can have with a, with a video game. And so that that did it for me. Right, that's what's up. Now, so I'm 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 not a big gamer, but it's not, it sounds like you know if you you play a game it takes you three weeks to complete it like there there's something about the game that gets that gets the the end get the the player the end user to be deeply invested i mean that's a lot of time to spend in the game so what is it about games like for you personally then as, as someone who actually does this as a profession give us like the professional lens. how do you guys think about art architecting games to really deliver value to your end user Right, yeah, and I, I think where that value comes in is games are, or at least the way that I see games, they're an escape from your current reality, and I think that's what a lot of our consumers look for within any video game outside of just Ubisoft um, and, our, and ourselves. Um, me as a marketer in the video game industry, what I get to do is I get to help tell that story and tell that fantasy so that um, so that people can come become more engaged and, and emotionally attached because it's not unlike a, a movie or... Uh, or something of that nature, right? It's you know, movie is just less interactive in terms of you going to a movie theater, you experience it, and then you walk away with the game. Um, you get a little bit of both of that, and you also get the inner interactivity of being able to pick up a joystick and actually control your characters and make these real time decisions where um, you know otherwise you, you can't do that in any other type of medium. Right. So yeah, I can I can imagine like someone getting lost like in a game. You know what I mean? Just like being completely. You talk about escaping, like. You know, like for me, my big escape is watching Lakers basketball or Michigan football, and I'll be all off in it. But I'm still like texting on my phone. Like I'm not completely lost in this total other world that I'm helping control. I'm actually still relatively passive in it. But gaming, I can see as as a player or end user getting lost in that game. Have you had that experience? I mean, I mean, maybe maybe on a on a 
on the secret, a more secret, different type of conversation, I, I, I'd like to share some of those like moments where I have gotten lost. Because like, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not saying it's true or not true that I have declined to go on like to parties or other social events um, <laughs> to stay at home and play games. I would not admit that right now, but. <laughs> But it's a probability. It's, it's, it's a compelling offer. Like it's a compelling decision to have to make. And so, um, yeah, maybe it's happened. Maybe it hasn't happened. But uh, <laughs> it's uh, and, and I feel like the the advancement that games are making, uh, you know, every single day, it just it it, it provides even a more in depth world for for gamers to to engage into. So yeah, it's um, the the potential is there. Absolutely. That's what's up, man. So so you're North American brand manager at Ubisoft. So Help help me understand, you know, what it is that a North American brand manager does. Because, like, so I'm I'm a marketing guy as well, and you know, I'm I'm clear on what it is that I do in managing, you know, in marketing Cliff Bars, for example. But how is the the products a little different? You guys aren't you guys aren't baking products necessarily. How are you? What what, what goes into you marketing uh, video games for Ubisoft? Yeah, so my, my primary role is um, I help facilitate all marketing aspects from consumer research all the way to, to go to market. And so I think uh, the, the, the biggest responsibility that I have is to ensure that, you know, working with our development teams and ensuring that the stories that we create that represent our games are clearly um, communicated to our consumers and, and not only that but also in a very engaging and emotional way right because there are tons of different video games out there there are tons of different other just substitutes in general that you can um opt for versus a video game and so for me as a um marketer of my region um it's on me to make sure that my titles float to the top of all those uh potential consideration points so my my previous two games i led or i helped lead marketing for um, Assassin's Creed titles, so Assassin's Creed Origins and Assassin's Creed Odyssey, and those are those are pretty good titles. But those are uh, Assassin's Creed is probably one of the biggest titles at Ubisoft. It's been around for maybe nearly twelve years, and so you know it's a big it's a big responsibility. And we have a pretty rabid fan base, and and they want to know what's new and what's more engaging and what we're doing differently um, with each 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 title that we come out with. And so that's my job to help communicate that to them. Okay, that's what's up. Because I, I mean, I don't I don't play video games at all. I used to you know, play up until, you know, some point in time in like a uh, middle school or so, but it wasn't, like, it was still before like this super serious gaming era, you know, like I, I played, you know, games on, like I had like, I had like a Sega Genesis. I think it's kind of as far as I went, you know, like I got out of the whole gaming thing before Xbox and before PlayStation really became a big deal. Um, but even with that being said, like I know about Assassin's Creed, like I must be in the tar- target demographic or have been for a long while because the only time I really watch uh, like a lot of commercials is when I'm watching live sports. And I know for a fact I've seen a lot of Assassin's Creed commercials like over my lifetime. So um, that must yeah. have been a pretty cool role to like manage the go-to-market strategy for that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Assassin's Creed has definitely transcended video games and the industry itself. It's, you know, they had a movie out. Um, ah, yeah. Popular, you know, references all across, um, you know, pop culture. So it's, it's almost akin to like a Call of Duty or, you know, a Madden NFL. Like everyone just knows the name. Like in some of our consumer testing, like you're talking about the high nineties from a, a recognition standpoint. So yeah, even if you're not, <laughs> even if you haven't played the game, like you've absolutely heard the name before. 
Right. Wow. That's that's bananas. You say you said you had a movie. Did the movie happen before you were at Ubisoft? Yeah, or was it, was, it while you were there? It was just before I got at Ubisoft. The movie came out. That's what's up. So what what's what's been like the coolest thing you've done uh in your time uh while working at Ubisoft and and, and managing either Assassin's Creed or uh what's the current title you're working on now? So the current title I'm working on is uh it's called Watch Dogs Legions. Um Okay. Yeah, really excited about it. It's another big title for us. It's actually the third installment. It comes out in, in October, but uh I'm excited about it because uh I'm even more front and center with leading this campaign, so it's 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 a good time. It's a good time to be at Ubisoft for me. <laughs> dope, dope. That's what's up. So um let's let's take a step back. I want to understand kind of like how you became you, right? So it's like you're you're in this you're in this role where you're managing really big titles. You work for one of the biggest gaming companies um in the country, I would imagine your budgets are, are pretty, you know, you, you can't tell us what your actual budgets are, but I can quasi reverse engineer, right? Given like I manage advertising budgets as well. I know how often I'm seeing your commercials kind of popping up on TV. You have some pretty good marketing budgets to work with. And how did, how did you kind of like end up down this path and becoming this big time marketing executive? So I want to go back and kind of understand like how you grew up and, and really, lay out the breadcrumbs like how did a, a brother like come from wherever it is you came from to be in this particular spot so where are you from yeah that's yeah so, so that's a good place to start so i'm uh natively from la um you know my mom she raised myself and my sister my older sister inner city of la um so yeah it was it was that was my upbringing um you know for my mom it was really about um you know, her major concerns for me growing up were how to stay out the fray of, or many of the pitfalls that, that you get with inner city LA. Um, and yeah. so that was her concern. So keeping me busy and, and occupied uh, my time was, was her major concern. But if you think about like my, my evolution in the video games and how I got into it, you know, throughout high school, I never really understood that, you know, being a brand manager, especially a brand manager for a video game um, was an option. So it wasn't until well after college that I, you know, discovered that path for me and, and got into video games. Um, but growing up, it was more about, um, you know, how do I make sure I set myself on the right path to ensure that I get out of my environment and, and, and to get out of the city and to expose myself to other things um, to ensure that, you know, I had the chance of becoming that brand manager uh, later on down the line. Right, right. I dig that. So, like, my mom's whole thing was, like, um, idle hands is, like, how does she say it's like idle hands is the devil's workshop or oh, play yeah. place or something like that yeah. so she was super big on just keeping us as busy as she could and she always supported we wanted to do something extracurricular she was like yep you can do it i'm gonna find a way to get you to play a price to be able to do it if not free because my mom kind of knew everybody and everybody owed her a favor of some sort um but once you signed up for it you couldn't quit that was her whole thing like keeping us busy so that you know, growing up in, in L.A. wasn't going to get, get us caught up. Um, yeah, what is your mom? There are a lot of Go traps ahead. in L.A., right? There are a lot of traps in L.A. And so I think I think that's super wise. Um, and, you know, my mom definitely um, had the same type of philosophy. And so it was it was a combination of that. Right. How do you how do how does she keep me busy um, to ensure that I don't have those idle hands and also paired that with how do you also, um, 
you know, allow me to gain exposure to different, you know, people, cultures, um, to ensure that I, I was just more exposed and better prepared to adapt in various situations. Right. Okay. So what were, what were some of the things you did, you know, growing up to, to keep you out of those pitfalls? Yeah. So, um, the first thing she did was, um, she bussed me out to a different school outside of my, my local neighborhood. So I got bussed an hour to, um, uh, a school called Brentwood Science Magnet, which was, you know, West Side, very um, upper middle class, predominantly white. Um, and, and and what it did for me was, granted, it was predominantly white, but it also had a fair amount of, um, you know, other uh, cultures represented there. So I, I did get some exposure and it did help me adapt to um, just different people, different situations and environments. But what I also got into at the same time while I was at that school was the Boy Scouts. And actually... I was actually a Boy Scout for a long time. So there are two different levels, or at least two different levels that I participated in. I was a Boy Scout or Cub Scout and then got into Boy Scouts. And so, um, I don't know, you can just imagine the scenario. Granted, right? predominantly white school, Boy Scouts. It was myself and one other black kid amongst, I couldn't even tell you how many actually Cub Scouts were in the troop, but it was just us two. And so it was, um, you know, that was one of the things that I had to do to occupy my time in. And there was a, there's one moment, there's this one moment where I was like, okay, this is not for me anymore. And so, but, uh, I don't want to belabor the, the story itself, um, but went on a trip with these with these Boy Scouts, um, and uh, it was like an overnight trip. And at some point, we were doing this activity with all the all the Scouts, and someone called me the N word. Scouts called me N word, right? right? So. Um, you know, immediately, like, I, of course, you know, I was, I was young. I didn't really fully understand. I knew, of course, it was wrong. And I knew that um, it made me highly un- uncomfortable. And so all the other parents, of course, they made an uproar about it and, um, and talked to the kids. But I immediately knew that, you know, this was no longer the place for me. And so my buddy, who was also black, of course, like the next day he quit. And so it was myself. And, <laughs> and I told my mom, I was like, yo, um, I don't, this is not for me anymore. Um, I didn't actually tell her what happened for whatever reason. I just, I don't, I don't know if I just didn't want to bother her with the situation, but right. Um, I, me being a Boy Scout was no longer an option. I made that, I made that very, very clear. <laughs> right, right, right. And so you're like, all right, Boy Scouts, chapter closed, Flandies. Now, I, 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 I did not participate in the Boy Scouts. I had some of my, which is also stories we can't get into on air. I know my older brother, my older brother, my older cousin, they were Boy Scouts for like two weeks. But that was just because I think they were the problem as opposed to reverse. But, you know, that's a whole other story for another time. But so you you, you wrap up the the Boy Scout situation. Is there anything that was um, that you've taken from your Boy Scout experience that, that stuck with you? So, what 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 it did allow me to do? I did get some exposure to, you know, um, you know, just other kids, other um, other cultures, which I think was 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 very helpful, and also helped me just adapt in general. So um, through that experience, um, you know, so after Boy Scouts, right, my mom was like, "Fine, you can you don't have to do that anymore, but you have to do something somewhere to to your, to your grandmother." Um, and one option on the table was, was was sports, and so I gravitated to sports, and through so through the sports that I participated in, I was able to you know gain even more exposure. And what I took from the Boy Scouts was that ability to adapt because I got to travel a bunch playing sports. And and what I learned from the Boy Scouts it just helped me um, be better suited to adapt in those 
different situations that I find myself in playing sports. So it was it was helpful. Right. Um, you know that that one moment was of course very painful. Uh, I think there was some some positive takeaways out of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I, I mean, what is, what is the quote? I think it's a Darwin quote. It's like, um, it's not the strongest or the smartest that survives, but the most adaptable. Like adaptability is a really important trait to be able to grow and navigate to different situations, as opposed to just being really rigid. You know what I mean? Um, so I think that's a that's a dope trait to have with you. Now you said you moved on from the Boy Scouts and got really deep into sports. Like sports is like a a saving grace for me. And I remember there was a while in my twenties I spent a lot of time in education, and um, I used to bump heads with other teachers because they kind of had this like anti sports thing. It was just kind of casted as just this jock thing. Yeah. But I knew for me there were parts of my character. Um, confidence, self-esteem, resiliency, grit that you can't develop in the classroom. You can only develop, you know, so I played football, basketball, baseball, and that's where I was able to develop those things. But sports in general, um, I just see them as a developing ground for young people's character in a way that academics alone can't develop you. So what, what sports did you play growing up? Yeah. So uh, I started out in track and field, um, that was Ooh. my that was my base sport, and then uh, then made my way over to football. Wow, I mean, I, I one of one of my quasi regrets was I never got in the track, you know, because I was a pretty serious athlete, but I felt like I could have knocked, you know, another couple of tenths of a second off of my forty time if I would have got involved in track so wait, and wait, learned wait. how to properly where, run. Where would that have put your forty time then? <laughs> Don't worry about that. <laughs> Uh, nah, nah, I, I keep it a buck. Like, shit, this is this is what we do on Bootstrap. So when I came to realize that I just wasn't a D one athlete, you know, I was running a four eight. And when you know, growing up playing LA City section, I mean, we played Crenshaw, Dorsey, Washington, Banning, Carson. Those of you who are from LA, you get the significance of those schools names I just dropped. And I went to Narbonne myself, and we had a bunch of. Like every weekend, I was playing against another Division One athlete, and these cats was running four fours and four fives, and that that three tenths of a second and four tenths of a second was like a massive difference on the football field. I remember uh, um, J.R. Retman was my year, so I came out of high school class of '95. Dude went on; he was a Heisman Trophy candidate at Arizona State. Then went on to um, play in the league for a minute. I think he won a, a Super Bowl championship with the New England Patriots. You know, this dude was, like, taller than I was, bigger than I was, and was running a 4-4 in high school, and I'm running a 4-8. And I was like, thank God I'm getting really good grades in school because <laughs> I'm going to college for something else. Like, I, don't have, I don't have that thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. But, you know, if I if I were to play – if I were to uh, not play, but if I were to ran track, you know, I probably could have got it down to maybe a, a 4-6 and been, been fast enough to um, – go to a smaller school and do more, do more brain damage. Yeah. Um, Cause I definitely got a concussion or two in high school playing football, but um, you know, it all, it all works out the way it works out. But I do think like track, man, I got mad respect for you track guys, man. Like, cause we, we used to have to be on track all preseason for basketball. And I just hated it. Like track was the hardest thing I ever even semi attempted. So what yeah. was, what was track like for you? Track was, track was, track was so tough. Um, and, 
when I first started, I hated it as well. Like I, um, I wanted to quit. I was, I was trying to ditch practices, but you know, fortunately, mom, she kept forcing me to go in. <laughs> and so it was a combination of that, and then the first few times that I actually experienced some success in winning, and um, that actually, you know, motivated motivated me to keep going. But it was, it was tough. And like to, to a point, I think what you're trying to say is like track is is a beast of a sport because you know it's it's really dependent on you the work you put into it and i think it's painful very very quickly so um outside of like a football team or a basketball team you have other players who you can kind of lean on on that track you it's just you and you alone versus everyone else on the track and you got to put in the work and so right. I, I think through track what i learned was um i'm super disciplined i have a, a, a an excellent work ethic and that that kind of carried me throughout my entire track as well as football career because I was never I was never the fastest or or strongest or most talented on any team but what I did have is I, I knew how to run smart and I knew how to I know how to race there's a difference between running and racing and I knew how to do that very very well mm. and I could be more strategic and I also I carried that to the field as well and so um I learned those things from from track and it was it was, it was an amazing opportunity because it also gave me you know um access to to upperclassmen and role models that I didn't have just around the neighborhood. So it was, um, it had a, a, lot, a lot of different benefits. Yeah, that, that's what's up. And, you, and quick, quick sidebar, because I want to keep going through this sports narrative, but like, g- give me, uh, or, I mean, I, I have a general idea like, for the listener, like a general landscape of like what your neighborhood was like. You talk about like not having role models in your neighborhood. Like what, what was your neighborhood like and what were some of the choices you had to make to, um, not get caught up in that. Yeah, so my neighborhood was um, so inner city LA, of course. Inner city LA, of course, as I mentioned. Um, but it was, you know, a lot of in those pitfalls that I mentioned. Also, were a lot of those pitfalls were just gang activity. So, um, how do you actually navigate those ones? Like, a, you know, a good portion of my friends were were, you know, affiliated with various gangs or whatnot. But I knew that that's something that I didn't want to do. So, um, a lot of the choices that I had to make were you know, it may seem mundane and, 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 and ridiculous to an outside viewer in terms of like, you know, the things that I have to wear. I have to be conscious of what I wear to ensure that I don't attract the wrong type of attention. Um, right. For example, you know, I went to Dorsey, of course, like you mentioned, and, um, you know, Dorsey was on one side of town. I lived on another side of town. And those two towns were opposite, you know, gang, uh, gang, uh, gang areas, right? So I lived in um, what would be called a crip area. Dorsey was closer to... Um, predominantly what would be called uh, the opposite area, which is blood area. And so, you know, if you went to the wrong area in the wrong type of clothing, like people would ask you about it and not because they want to know what kind of beaker boys you have on or what you have on. <laughs> right. um, like you're not supposed to be over there dressed a certain way. And it was a real thing. So like, and it was popular in, in pop culture and a lot of things that, you know, you know, NWA and um, a lot of the early nineties <clears throat> are, are hip hop, you know, you know, groups were rap about was was a real thing for for us, and I'm sure for you as well. And so, right, it was how do you navigate that, um, you know, without without slipping up and getting involved with the wrong crowd. Yeah, I remember. So it's funny. Like a, a quick, <laughs> he you might get mad and tell the story, but he'll get over it. So, you know, my my, <laughs> my, my boy Jamel. Um, you know, he went to he went to school. Not, I mean, he, he lived over in Harbor City, but he um, went to church over. Uh, I think it was his church was over 
uh, in Hoover. Um, and so it was a Crip neighborhood. And he was a big Michael Jordan fan. So his mom's had got him the cool Chicago Bulls starter jacket. You know, the black one with the big red bull on the back and whatever. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's wintertime and he's going to church for like a Wednesday night Bible study. And he comes back to the pad after church cold and like upset. And I'm like, yo, like what's, like, what's good? And some cats saw him walking down the street. You know, he wearing slacks and we called them church shoes. As yeah. I got older, I learned to call them dress shoes. But <laughs> growing up where we grew up, we called them church shoes. So he's in his whole little get up. And, you know, he always liked to dress up nice. And so he has on a button up shirt and a tie. But it's 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 wintertime. And so he, you know, he's it's, it's, it's L.A. cold, which if you grew up there, it feels cold to you. So he's rocking his bulls jacket. And long story short, he got who banged on. They they recognized that he was a civilian, but they just didn't like what he was wearing. So they took his jacket. And it was like, you can't be walking through here with that jacket on. So he had, he had to come up off of it, which is so, like, it's just bananas that that's the world that we grew up in. You have to figure your way out, like how to navigate. And you went back and forth every day. Like, I, by and large, my neighborhood was all crypts. And so, as long as I stayed in my neighborhood, I never really had to worry about my dress code. You know what I mean? Yeah. But you, on a daily basis, having to traverse back and forth between those two, that seems mad complicated. Yeah, I stayed in uh, I stayed in uh, Dorsey Green quite often. So, I think <laughs> being a being an athlete, you, like you you um you were excluded from it. Like you had a pass on both sides to to do your thing. Like you were actually seen as someone doing good. And, um, and and people knew that to Dorsey and you played on the Dorsey football team and like there was a you know Dorsey gets a lot of attention from college scouts and so there was a potential like if you were good enough like you could you can get out of like the neighborhood the hood and uh and get Don't to college so. And so and people people recognize it and, and and mostly left you alone if um if if that's what you were about but granted like there were still you know players on the team who were affiliated on both sides and and I think what's even which what's which even illustrates that even more is that once they were on the team, all of that was left at the door. And so it was all about football and 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 combining and getting together to to being the best team that we could be. That's dope. So so you so you go to you go to Dorsey High School and you play football there. Now for those of you who are not from LA, I mean Dorsey's not quite Narbonne High School, which is where I went. Shout out to Narbonne. But here we go. Don't even start, but, man. <laughs> but no, like you, you keep it a buck. Like uh, if you look back, like historically, going all the way back to probably as early as you know the fifties or sixties. These are stories I've heard growing up in L.A. It's like Dorsey and Crenshaw high schools have perennially been like the two high schools that are at the heart of uh, inner city L.A. and um. They're rival high schools, and they, they've kind of, they, they kind of were the symbols of the city section, where if you weren't even from L.A., you would probably know about those two schools. Matter of fact, you've seen the, the movie Love and Basketball. Uh, the two Omar Epps and Snell Lathan, they went to Crenshaw, but it shows them several times competing against Dorsey High School because that, that was their rival. So what was that like for you, like, getting into football and being able to play for such a historic program and, and what position did you end up playing too? Yeah, no, it was, uh, it was an amazing 
time and opportunity because I knew I knew you 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 have to have a, a pretty good level of skill to to make it on the varsity team. And so um, I ended up playing running back and free safety, went both ways, did you know all over the um, special teams as well, kickoff return and all that good stuff. And it was it was a great it was a great opportunity, and uh, it was you know I knew that I wanted to be a part of that historic tradition of what it meant to be in that Dorsey Crenshaw football game and everyone looked up to that game and looked forward to it. And if you lost every other game in the season, which we we never did, of course, but if you did, if we did happen to lose every single game in the season and we won that Crenshaw game, um, it was, you know, you did your job. And so I think what also illustrates just how the magnitude of not only the program itself, but also um, what was going on around the, the schools from a neighborhood perspective is that uh, when I was at Dorsey, we had a night, football game against Crenshaw in maybe five to eight years because of gang activity that had happened, um, uh, which had ended uh, us uh, or Dorsey versus Crenshaw night games because it was just so much violence that happened. And and I remember my senior year, ESPN did a, a documentary, a short documentary on the first night game in, in, in I don't know, however long that was, that five or 10 years, um, and what that meant to the communities and, and the rivalry overall. And it was, it was, it was amazing. And that's just kind of, um, the example of like how much people put into that Dorsey Crenshaw rivalry. Right, right, right. So, so you guys had to have those uh, three p.m. Friday kickoff times. Yeah, which were terrible. Like, <laughs> no one wants to play a high school football game at three p.m. It was terrible. But um, yeah, it just you know it was for the safety of all the players. Yeah, no, that, I mean that that made sense too because I mean, uh, it. I mean, that, <laughs> you it used to get wild. I remember actually. Hearing about that because wasn't it a situation where somebody uh, started shooting from the stands and then like one of the players, thankfully, um, it hit his helmet. So he didn't. Am, am I misremembering that? I don't remember the exact story of like the game that ended the night games, but it was yeah, it was well, there was a shooting and I, I just don't remember the actual what actually happened. Yeah, that's, that's wild, man. So what's uh what's what's your best memory from? playing football at Dorsey High School? Probably when we beat Narbonne by, like, five. <laughs> no, I'm <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, He's the worst human being I know. <laughs> I would say uh, um, that's a great question. So, you know, I had some, some pretty great, great great games where, you know, I, 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 I did a pretty good job. But I think my, my senior year when we um, – in the playoffs and we ended up losing the first round, but I just put so much into that game and I went both ways. I literally didn't come off the field. Like I, I stayed on the field the entire time. I didn't even come to the sidelines to get water because I knew that I was going to be in the next play. And like, I just didn't want, I was trying to conserve energy. And so right. I was just proud of my effort and then my effort to leading that team, um, you know, throughout that game. And, and we were, we, we had a bunch of, uh, you know, players who were ineligible just because of grades. And so we, we knew we were going in shorthanded and still we gave a great effort. And uh, I was, I was proud of that more than anything else, more than any other stat that I could put up. I was just proud of like how hard we all worked at for that game in that game. That's what's up, man. So what, what's already come through so far in this conversation is that you have a, like a tremendous grind to you. Like it's the way in which you've approached track and I'm hearing it come through in a way in which you've, approach football and another thing you dropped in the in the beginning is you went to a, a magnet elementary school when you went over to school over in Brentwood which means you have some natural academic talent but I would assume if you were able to marry 
you know, your, your natural academic talent with your grind. Um, you had quite a few options coming, I would assume coming out of high school for college. Is that correct? Yeah. So I, I did, and I mostly leaned into athletics versus academics just because maybe I was, you know, just young and, and academics kind of came easy to me. And I was, and I took, uh, advanced classes at Dorsey, um, but it, it it didn't push me as much as I probably um, could have worked. So I leaned into more of my athletics. And so in athletics, I had, you know, quite a few, um, you know, colleges recruiting me. However, um, during the recruitment process for football, um, only one school actually offered me a, a scholarship, which was, you know, which was great, which is my main goal for going to Dorsey. And like, I'm looking up to all of my upperclassmen and I knew that you know, that was the option. And once that came through, I knew that, you know, I had made it. I was like, yes, we made it. Right. I was like, we made it and I'm, I'm there. Um, this is what I've always wanted. So, but it was just the one school. And, and the one thing that when I look back on that, that time period, it was, you know, I don't know if it was a lack of maybe guidance or um, mentorship in, through that recruitment process, but um, decision on whether or not to sign early, which I did versus wait for other schools to, to potentially offer a scholarship was um, something I didn't do. And so I just, I immediately hopped on my first offer, um, got a D1 scholarship to University of Nevada. And I, and I, and I took that. Mm. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's interesting. Cause I think a lot of times when, when we're, when you're trying to like climb out of poverty, you tend to have a bunch of mediocre to bad options and then one good option, mm-hmm. right? So if, if, if that one good option gets offered to you, it's like a no-brainer to take it, right? And so you just kind of hop at it or hop on it because there's no, like, splitting of hairs and trying to figure out, like, you know, which one should you take. But you ended up in a kind of a unique situation, right? I can imagine it being really complicated at 17, 18, trying to figure it out because, you know, I didn't, I didn't figure out how to make, make tough choices between multiple good options until I was well into my 30s. Now, you're 17, 18, you get your first good option kind of presented to you. University of Nevada offers you a scholarship to come play football, and it's kind of a, a, a ticket to a new future um, or a better future. Right. And so, and even, you know, and I think I know where you're going. And even, so there's, there was that, right? There's just me being young, 17. And then, um, you know, there's my mom, right? My mom, she was very much... Um, you know, involved throughout the recruitment process. And I think her main, her main concern was not being left out of the process. Right. And so, Mm -hmm. and so, you know, we would have, you know, coaches come by the house and they say, you know, you know, praise me and how much they want me to come to the school. But when the day came, it was like the, the message or communication was, look, you know, we like you, you're on the top of our list, but you know, we have other athletes as well who are in line and we're ready to offer them. So don't get left out. And so I think that, weighed heavily with my mom and um you know with me as well like i didn't want to get left out of the process and, and to your point right it was um the first good option um that i had and it's, it's technically the only option and i didn't want to risk um you know what could be versus what i had right there in my hand yeah no that's that's real i remember uh the first time i learned the concept of batna which is the best alternative to negotiated agreement. Right. It's basically that's your leverage. If someone offers you X and you don't, you don't want it and they decide to get up and walk away from the table, 
you know you already have another offer that's as good or better than what they just offered you. Right. That's your batna. But it sounds like you like you didn't have one. And so it's like you look, I went to Dorsey for this. I I got this offer in front of me. I'm gonna sign it. I'm hopping on it. Um and you know, you can't necessarily fault you for that because what if, you know what I mean, you start playing the what if game and what if other schools didn't offer you? And yeah. then Nevada moves on, they fill your slot with some other kid who 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 they offered. And now you're just back in LA right. trying to figure out what's next. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I certainly don't regret, you know, the decision. Um, it just always makes me um, reflect in terms of the position I was in and, you know, how other kids may be going through the same thing and whether or not they have those resources. And it's something that I've always wanted to do is go back and see if I can help, you know, impart whatever knowledge that I can for, you know, folks going through the same thing. And that's something that I, I ultimately hope I get to do someday. Yeah, that's what's up. So you 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 get your ticket punch, you push off to Nevada, you go do your thing. Clearly, you end up making it through and you graduate. Did you graduate in four years or five years? Uh, five years. I took a redshirt year. Um, so graduated five years with uh, my BA in journalism, emphasized in advertising. I, I knew, you know, for the longest time, I knew I wanted to do either advertising or or criminal justice, and uh, you know, I you know, law school was was a, was a, was a, a blip on this on the radar at the moment. So I just went with advertising. Okay, that's what that's what's up. And so, what was it? What was it like being uh, a student athlete, in particular, a football player? It's, you have to put so much time in. Um, at least, I guess I have more firsthand knowledge around what football players have to go through. Given I know a lot of people who play D one football. Um, so I have this particular assumption that maybe football players have to work harder than other student athletes, but which may or may not be true. But I do know that football players have to work really, really hard. And so what was that like for you being a student athlete um, at Nevada? Yeah, it was it was really tough. Um, I, I think you, you I was dealing with, you know, probably with a lot of other students were dealing with, with just being away from home. And so there was that element being on my own, being self-sufficient you know, no one's making you go to school. So there's that. And then there's also the, the added element of <clears throat> the effort it takes to, to be competitive and active within the football and the, just the sheer time and time demand that it is. And so that, that made it even more tough, right? So you think about your, a regular student who has, you know, ample time to do all the studying, but then when you have the football program, who's taking a large chunk of that time away from you, um, it certainly heavies the burden in terms of like how do you get all of that done. So it was it was tough, but it was also I think it also turned out to be a testament to my ability to be dedicated and to um, apply myself um, with just hard work and dedication. And so I think those through those things came through, which I learned from like my experience in track and football in high school. And so that definitely helped me get through it. But it was it was not easy, right? And so it was um, you know all those concerns. Uh, um, you know, especially as a freshman in college. So it was, it was tough. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, kudos to you for being able to figure it out. I remember talking with my oldest brother, he played football at Cal and he's a computer science major. And he came in really, really sharp, you know, big brain dude. And, but I remember him saying that he basically had to make sure he was done with classes by like one. So he could then get some food in him, And he had to be up at the stadium by two. And basically from, 2 to 8 p.m. between uh, film, workouts, actual practice, 
whatever type of rehab you have to get done, whatever, whatever, whatever. He was at the stadium from 2 to 8 p.m. every single day. Yeah. And he, then you got to come home and try and get some dinner and you study and get back up because you have to have your classes done by noon or 1 p.m. again the next day. And it was like, it just seems like such a grind. And it almost seems like it, um, it uh, diminishes what the the academic experience gets to be. Because I know he had to switch out of computer science because he couldn't get enough lab time to do what he needed to do. Yeah. And, and he became a history major. Right. You have a finite amount of time to get those studies done. But, you know, football takes up a, a large portion of it. So it's just, it's just not enough time in the day. And so and that's what you described was. Um, was in season and it you, the same amount of time commitment happens in the off season as well, where you have to get up at like four or five in the morning to go through morning conditioning, which wipes you out for the rest of the day. And then right. you have to come back after your, your classes are done in the afternoon for even more study time or, or um, workout. So it's, 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 it's nonstop year round. Yeah. yeah that's, that's, that's a lot, but you somehow, you know, you, you, you tapped into your grind and, and, uh, what you learn growing up in this, this work ethic that seemed to have been cemented at a young age and you, you make it all the way through. What was one of your um, brightest moments, either athletically or academically, culturally, like what was one of one of your, your best experiences from your time um, in college at, at university of Nevada? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think, you know, a lot of it was um, the camaraderie that I was able to, to, to partake in with just other players, like during the the summer sessions, um, you know, it's two a days or three days sometimes. And, you know, you're with your core group of uh, your teammates and it's, you're going through it every single day for, you know, a good month or so prior to the season starting. And I, and I really value that and the friendships that I, that I were, that I was able to develop during those times. Um, it was just a, an incredible moment. I would say from a, like a game opportunity perspective, uh, we played, you know, BYU, they came into our house. They were ranked, you know, top 25. And we hadn't been a 20, top 25 team in some time. And so they came in. They didn't even, like, they came in the day of the game. So it was a truly a sign of disrespect to our program overall. They came wow. in the day of the game and expected to come in and just, you know, you know, walk all over us. And we, you know, we put up a, a, a good fight. And then it came down to, like, the last, I don't know, maybe a few minutes of the game. And we pulled it out. And it was – um it was a great moment. Like it was one of the best moments that we had uh, that season. I don't. Even, I'm not even sure which one it was, but um, it was just great to um, to achieve that that type of success um, throughout the program because we were a young program. Um, we were just getting into a new conference, so you know, not not many people expected much from us. But that that day, we um, we, we we did a great job. It was a, a powerful <laughs> moment. Yeah, y'all y'all showed up and showed out. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure campus was lit that night. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Hey, matter as I think about it, didn't um I know you guys didn't like overlap in terms of time, but didn't didn't Kaepernick go to Nevada? He did. He did. He went uh it was a few years after me, but um it's amazing. And like when he was there, he had Nevada ranked like top five. It was insane. So he he uh he's he's made an impact then and he's certainly still making an impact now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what's up, man. Um so then so t- talk talk us through like so what happens, you know, I think it's I think it's pretty impressive that you know when you when when you get to listen at least for me when i get to listen to these journeys that people go on so you're this um little knucklehead running around inner city la um you make it through the your 
your Boy Scout, Cub Scout experience without being too traumatized. You find your way into what seems to be your thing. Like you do the, the track thing and the football thing. And now you look up and you're 22, 23 years old with a college degree. Like that's a, that's a pretty high climb that you've, you've made. Cause a lot of people, you know, who come from where we come from, they don't, they don't ever approach those heights like at any point in time in their life. Yet that's where you stand at 22, 23 years old. What, what did you go on to do after you graduated? Right after, so after Nevada, um, came back home to LA, you know, I, before coming back home to LA. So, um, as most college football players do, tried my hand at um, NFL tests and whatnot to see if I had any, um, you know, feasibility of making it into the league, which, you know, I was a decent football player, but of course not that good. So after that, came back home and, um, you know, I really didn't have a clue as to what I wanted to do. Like, I knew that, you know, with my major, I, kn- I knew I wanted to get into some type of media or advertising. So I knew that was an option, but I just didn't know what field or industry. And so, I came back, got straight into my my daily habit of playing video games, and um, I found my way into the gaming industry through a, a pretty funny story. And so, um, <clears throat> you know, one day found out that PlayStation was was holding a contest um, to attend E3 to be a correspondent at E3. E3 is like the, probably the biggest video game conference in the United States, and so it's a big wow. deal. It's like, yeah, it's like. Um, it's akin to like uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory of video games. So like, it's, it's amazing. Every single publisher is there. You can test out games. They're giving away stuff. It's just an amazing opportunity. It's, 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 it's great. It's like, it's a, yep. it's a very big deal. And so, but it's hard to get into. Like it's, you have to be industry or press or it's just, it's very exclusive to get into. So this contest was a big deal because they were offering eight slots um, to get in and you can go and, and interview a bunch of people and you would be representing PlayStation, which, you know, I was a hardcore PlayStation fan. So that sounded like, you know, a dream come true. So the contest itself was hilarious, right? So what they were asking people to do was to um, come to this audition um, and tell PlayStation why they should choose you to, um, to, to be a correspondent. So me, um, me like needing for this, me needing to win this competition to get to E3, SOCOM character, which is a video game I was into at the time. And so you do with a headband <laughs> on. Um, and mind you, mind you, I'm like fresh out of college, right? So I'm I'm on swole. Like my like I'm, <laughs> right. I'm like gunned out. And so and I and I and I was not bashful about it. And so I went in there like a super smooth and uh, ended up winning, right? Up- <laughs> Looking like Action Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, that was my inspiration, real talk. Um, yeah, so literally, like in my sketch, I kicked down the door and like I did this hilarious, and they loved it, and I won. And so, um, and, and whoa, then, whoa, whoa, so you full costume, you 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 <laughs> kick down the door, you're rolling on the dude. I I mean, you got it, you got to provide, you you got access to this footage. It'd be great to put up on the gram. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure, but there isn't enough money in the world that way. <laughs> That can get that footage anywhere, anywhere near the internet. All right, I'm, I'm gonna try to work my back channel to see what I can make happen. <laughs> but anyway, so 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 I, I win the contest, right? And so I get to E3. It's an amazing opportunity, and I do all those things. I interview devs, and um, you know, I get to play all the newest and latest games, and it was a great time, right? And so, and that was it. That came, uh, that came and went. Two years later, that same company they had a position open, and they remembered me, and they said, "Hey." 
we think you would be great for this position. We want you to come work for us. And that was like my foray into gaming. And I was like, yeah, I was 100% on board. And, uh, and that's how my, my career in gaming started. That Man, that's such a, that beyond like the humor and the silliness of you rocking like an army costume and all of that, walking in looking heck of swole. What I think is super impressive about that is like the the courage to be able to show up in that way. You know, because normally we like to play it safe. We yeah. like to play it cool, right? Like, so this is the little, these are, these are the three or four things that I'm allowed to be. And you're like, nah, this is something that I want. This is a great opportunity. So you went and you, like you went for it and you put yourself out there and as opposed to just trying to play it cool and lo and behold, you made such an impact. A, you got to go to the super exclusive conference and be a correspondent for PlayStation. Dope, which is, you know, just experientially alone, given how much of a gamer you were, I'm sure that's like, you know, uh, an experience you'll never forget. But then B, a couple of years later, you made such an impact, they reached out to you for a job? It was, uh, I was shocked myself. They just, they simply just remembered me and reached out. And it was, and I think, I think what, you know, to your point, right, it was about passion and, and, and truly, um, you know, allowing that passion to drive, you know, my behaviors more so than just trying to keep it safe, which is what I typically do do, especially like in new environments, engaging with new people, especially putting myself out there is not something that I just do all the time. But I know that, you know, for things that I am passionate about, I'm willing to go 100%. That's what I did for track and football. And so it's uh, it's the same for, for, for video games as well. And, it, and, it, it's, and, it's, and it's helped me set my, plant the seeds of my career. Awesome. So you get in, you're now, you're now a gaming professional. What, what were you doing with this company? Were you still running around wearing army suits, interviewing <laughs> fools? Or like, what, what, what were you doing when you landed this gig? I thought this was a safe space, but apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> apparently not. So I got to... <laughs> yeah, so I'm just trying um, to understand, brother. Understand. <laughs> the worst type of friend. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> So no, um, so for for this company, um, I was actually uh, managing PlayStation.com in their in their loyalty program. So creating various emails and um, uh, email based marketing communications for PlayStation.com and all of their their first IP titles. So it was it was a cool way to to truly get into um, the first test of, taste of what marketing for a video game company could look like. Granted, like I wasn't. Um, an employee of PlayStation. I was an employee of a different agency that worked for PlayStation, but it was, it was the first time I had true insight in terms of like where this thing in, in gaming could go. Right, right, right. Okay. And so did that, did that, um, you didn't springboard from there into like Ubisoft's like what, what did that, um, like how did that move you forward? in your career? Like, what did you learn there? What did you leverage from it? But then ultimately, what did you go on to do next? Yeah, and so I think this is a good point because um, to, to, to use a video game term, like, throughout my career, what, I, what I've been doing was just leveling myself up through all of my different experiences. And, um, this particular company, I realized that you know, I, I loved what I was doing. I loved like being as close as I was to um, the strategic decisions of that particular marketing. I wanted to, to have a, a bigger seat at that table um, in terms of bringing these to life um, 
you know, in a marketing campaign. So I knew that, that I wanted to do more. I knew that I wanted to do more in terms of like um, my scope that I, that I had on marketing campaign. So I left that job and then I found a new job at a startup company and the startup company also worked in video games. Um, uh, it was called THQ Ice. Um, so in partnership with video game publisher, um, we were developing a brand new video game um, and it was, it was run as a startup company. So I was the, I was the, the fourth employee there. So literally wow. employee number four. So my first day on that job was like unpacking my computer from a, a box um, and getting it set up and <laughs> uploading all my software so that I can just literally run my computer. And like, there was no benefits package. There was no, there was no nothing. It was just us. There was a group of four of us trying to start this company. And it was, it was an amazing opportunity. Granted, it was, it was terrifying because there was just, there was no stability, no, you know, foundation. Like we were building all of that. But at the same time, it was also amazing because we were building all that. It was the first time I was in a managerial role. It was the mm. first time I got to help establish what the culture of the company we were trying to build would, would turn into. And so um, that that like just set off a whole new flame with inside of me. And so ultimately that company failed actually for a bunch of different reasons. Um, a bunch of different reasons. Just want to reemphasize that. Um, um, <laughs> but it also made me realize that I needed to further my education from a, a business perspective and just to, um, you know, further establish what that foundation from a marketing perspective looked like. And so I knew I wanted to go to business school. And so several people who were at that company suggested the same thing. They said, hey, you know, business school, I think is a great option for you. Um, and, you know, a bunch of those people wrote recommendations and that's what led me into, you know, applying for business school. That's what's up. And so before we move on to the to the business school situation, I actually started my own startup post-business school and I learned just as much as I learned in business school as I did different type of information. Yeah. But the same learning curve of, in terms of just the amount of new things that I actually came to understand about business that I didn't previously know in conceptualizing forming, launching, and ultimately having this company fail. Um, so if you look back at your experience at THQ Ice, what was, um, what was like the biggest thing you took away from, from that experience being employee number four to have to set up your own computer? I'm sure you, like you guys had to do like the spectrum you had to work across. You had to be an admin to a C-suiter, you know, all in the same day. Yeah, you had to. You talk about wearing like multiple hats. It's a it's a cliche for stars, but it's it's so true, and it's um, and it's also really really stressful. Like it's like each of those things are their own particular jobs, and most companies have full departments dedicated with dedicated you know resources to doing those things. But at as employee number four, you have to do a little bit of all that. So, um, uh, admin, you know, onboarding, marketing you know, PR, all of those things are under the same hat. And so I I think the biggest takeaway was, you know, just more of a management perspective. Like, how do you manage yourself um, Mm. without going insane? Because I did a poor job of it when I was actually in the position. Like I, I was working way too late, Um, you know, personal life was starting to suffer. And so the work-life balance was something that, that became a real thing that I had to, you know, better Mm. manage myself through. And so, that that was one of the biggest takeaways from it as well. And then also, 
you know, when you have a limited budget, a small company, granted, we've launched and we hit our numbers, but there were so many um, other factors from a, um, you know, contract, a contractual perspective in terms of the deals that we were making outside of just the sheer gaming, um, gaming acquisition element from a, from a, a, a customer basis. And so, yeah. like, there were all those other things that I, you know, I was getting more exposure to that I didn't necessarily have an understanding of going into it. And so, when you when you paint that broader picture of what the full P and L looks like, it just it just you can just approach things from a, an entirely different perspective. And I think that's what business school like helped me truly get a bigger picture of. Yeah, yeah, got it. So, you 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 head off to business school and. You're like, all right, I want to go get this broader, deeper um, knowledge base and, and skill set. Like, the, I think the, the two cliche terms we business school alum use is either skill set or toolkit. You know, it's like yeah. we're, we're going the kind of broad. And some people think that it's just some, some jargon, like you went off and paid too much money. And so now I need to justify this diploma. But there's actually some real, some real skill and talent, talent and way of thinking about things that comes with it. So, Talk to me about like the transformation that happens with you um, as a business leader and a marketing executive through business school and your career immediately after. Yeah, so when I when I got into Michigan Ross Go Blue, um, it Go was, Blue, uh, I knew that I was going to take a step away from gaming just to ensure that I was exposing myself to you know, the best marketing experiences that I could have. And so Ross definitely checked that, that box for me, but also the companies that I would engage with um, during my internships uh, in between business school years and then immediately after business school. So was able to, to get an internship at Procter & Gamble and ultimately, um, you know, work there after business school. And so the combination of, of, of Ross and P&G were, I, I treated those like, you know, Ross was my, my core base of, you know, marketing education, and then P&G was more of my finishing school. And so those two experiences just helped me become a more structured thinker from a marketing perspective. It gave mm-hmm. me a better sense of um, the importance of understanding consumer insights because what, initially I was just doing marketing because it was, I liked video games. It was just fun to do. I really didn't know if I like, mar- I like marketing for marketing itself and the science and, and the art that goes into it. And being at Procter & Gamble, Help me understand that. And so um, I worked on Pantene, which is, you know, shampoo for women. And I, I shaved my head every single day. And like, <laughs> right. um, and also I was only, I was only, you know, black person on the team. And so um, I was forced with needing to understand the consumer, consumer insights. And in order for me to make a compelling, you know, advertising or communication structure or strategy for, for, for my products. And so that huh. was, that was, that was powerful for me. And also, PNG itself is known as, you know, you know, uh, uh, you know, the birthplace of, of brand marketing itself. So just the fundamental training that they provided was was some of the greatest training that I've ever been exposed to. And um, and I, I I currently use a lot of those skills to this day. Yeah, yeah. I mean that. I mean the the, repu- the reputation is real. It's it's not it's not just PR. Like you know, there there are a few companies. I don't want to disparage any, um, but there there are a few companies that are considered above all the others and i do know that um png and their training program is considered to be if not number one um a close second a third but most people consider it to be number one um i'm gonna go number one 
<laughs> run, run with that. It's a, it's, it's a it's a reputation that they that was really well earned, and so I'm glad that you actually got to get that experience because it'll. I mean, it's yours now forever. That's yeah. that's that's knowledge and best practices that won't ever go away. But the thing that one thing I want to double click on for a second during your time at P and G. So you're a ball head black man who's actually the only black person on your team working on Pantene. So I think that that's actually a great situation to be in to learn your craft. And the reason why I say that is far too many marketers lack empathy. They, they get an idea. The idea is clever to them, whether they're wherever they get their ideas in the shower, in the car, while they're going for their morning run, whatever it may be. And then they come and they can try and push that idea forward without ever stopping and thinking about what's or who is my end consumer and what is their problem and how, how, how am I going to be able to solve their problems? Cause that's where the best marketing comes from. If you look at, you know, like the iPhone, the reason why it was so revolutionary, it wasn't just because it was sleek and pretty, even though it was really what it did is it, it was a step function change and how we could communicate via mobile, yeah. right? And we could be connected one human to another anywhere over the world. And the iPhone did that better than any other device had done previously. So it was solving a problem. And so it was coming from this place of empathy. I would have to think that you, had, you could lean into none of your personal experiences working on Pantene as a bald-headed black man who shaved his head every day. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and it's and that, I think that was one of the 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 secretly beautiful things about my experience at PNG, right? It was like like how do I how do I gain and understand and come to embrace that empathy that I that I need to have for a consumer set who is the furthest thing from me um, possible, and um, and it took some time uh, to really get not comfortable, but just to understand that and to truly embrace it, so that I. So that it translated into the work that I was doing, but ultimately, once, once, um, once that took effect, and I and I, and as I think about it, as I'm having this conversation, I'm not, I couldn't even pinpoint when exactly, but I think it was during one of my training sessions, and um, you know, they they put you through like a boot camp or whatever, and you know, the light bulb just went off, and um, it's really about trying to identify like a group of a group you know a, a target segment's problem their key problems and how does your product help them solve that and, and how do you marry those two things and so and then from an advertising perspective right how do you transform that creatively into a message that they can they can then consume it's um it, yeah. it, it was a great it was a great moment for me and, uh, and i you know that's probably one of my my best level up experiences that i've had within my marketing career i i think is i think it's amazing right so if you look at you know where you started from, you know, inner city LA. And now at this point in the story, you're at the birthplace of brand management and the place that's widely considered the number one marketing executive training program in the world for what we do. And this is, this is where you've gotten through constantly level up, leveling up and through, grind and working hard and having the discipline you spoke to in the way in which you approach track. Like, you know, you might not have been like the fastest, but you knew how to race. Right. And so you have this discipline, this grind, this work ethic. 
and you, you just kept climbing. And now you look up, you know, you're a Michigan NBA, you're at Procter and Gamble, being trained amongst the best in the game and by the best in the game. And then you're able to level up from there again. And now you're back full circle, back in gaming, working at Ubisoft, working on some of the biggest brands and titles that are out there. Um, like, what does that feel like? Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, been, it's been phenomenal. Um, but it's also, and one thing that I've learned throughout my entire journey and progress is that each, each step that I take, um, I realize that there's always another chapter. Um, like each, each accomplishment or each finish line that I reach, I realize that, you know, this is just the start of that next, that next thing. And so, um, and while I've, I'm proud of the, the, the accomplishments and the journey that I've taken thus far, I also know that there's so many more things that I want to do. There's so many more things that I want to try and touch and, and, um, and create. And so I look forward to the future more so than, than what I've done in the past. Um, so yeah, um, I'm excited about it. Yeah. You know, here's, here's a question I've actually, I've never asked anyone on this show, but it, it just occurred to me, like, I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot. Um, and if you don't have like the perfect answer, so be it. But I think it's something that, you know, you and I should just explore beyond this episode and anyone who's listening, you should think about it as well. As you think about all the things you want to do and things you want to explore and how you want to keep leveling up with all these, you know, as you continue on your journey. And then you also think about the kind of burden of being born black in inner city LA. How do you, how do you manage, I guess, the trade-offs between learning and growing for like learning and growing sake and this responsibility to an extended family, a community, uh, a broader culture. You know what I mean? Like, how do you balance, like, what's best for Aaron as an individual and what's best for uh, trying to help move the family or community forward? You see what I'm saying? Yeah, you get no, what I'm getting at? Yeah, I, I understand 100%. And um, I think more recently that's been something that's weighed heavily on my mind is because when you look at the entire journey from where, you know, since we grew up very similarly where we started to where we are now, like, I, I don't know what the real probabilities of success, you know, for, for anyone is in that, in that scenario. Like there are so many pitfalls and traps that could have easily derailed that in an instant. Um, you know, so it's, 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 inc it's, it's incredible that, you know, we've been able to, to, to reach this point of success. And so um, what I often think about is, how can we, or how can I help increase the probability of, of success for anyone who is following in those same footsteps? So what can I do to go back and, you know, I don't know, or just being another resource for anyone in the inner city growing up um, who needs that help or who needs that guidance to help ensure that they get to the next level um, to keep them leveling up. Um, and I think, I think you, you push as hard as you can for as long as you can um, and find those opportunities to, you know, ensure that, you know, the path that you have blazed, you know, doesn't diminish over time and that it's visible for anyone else who wants to follow in, in similar footsteps. It doesn't have to be the same, but um, 
but like what that like what that actual balance looks like i don't know i'm still trying to figure that out myself but i i do know it's something that that i think i do have a responsibility to you know um you know beyond myself but to my community as well um to to, to pay that for it yeah i think i think like intuitively as i'm still processing through i'm listening to you talking i'm halfway listening to my answer in my head and i think what what pops to mind for me is the exact balance is going to be unique from person to person. Yeah. But at the macro level, it's just this understanding of at no point should the, should like at no point should you be completely disconnected from the community. Like you have to stay some percentage, whether it's 50% or 10% of your bandwidth, whatever it is, each person is going to be different, right? Some people go into um, nonprofit work, um, or they go back and they're like, I'm starting businesses within my community or whatever it may be. And it's where they really dedicate like 50% of their time into focusing on the community. Some people, maybe 10%, whatever it is, having a, co- a commitment to the community needs to be a part of the work that we do as those of us who's, who've come from it. And cause we didn't make it on our own. Right. And right. as you listen to your story, like all the grind that you have, like, there were people who were around and who loved you and supported you all along the way. And some of which weren't even from our community, but definitely the majority, which were from our community. And I know were from your family um, who at least, you know, were there to love and give whatever it is they had as you were trying to make it from one level to the next. So, you know, no man is an Island, like no one makes it on their own. Right. And so because we have quote unquote made it um we need to find a way to make sure we stay connected because i know like where we come from there's a it's a particular it's like it's a unique brand like it's this double-edged sword even going on right now where you have black flight so inner city la is not as black as it once was when we were growing up mm-hmm. but then folks who are still there they're still living under some of the same stuff we grew up with you know and so like how do we go back and and make sure that we help alleviate some of that stress and even try to address the systemic oppression that's holding those folks down. It's a interesting thing to ponder. Yeah, no, I I think it's a great question. And um, it's something that I've definitely been thinking about, especially given the, the recent uprising that we've been seeing within our country. And like, you know, Ubisoft itself, we're trying to, they're trying to do more within the community as well. And I'm, and I'm glad that I'm actually here at this particular moment so I can help guide in and have some type of impact you know, granted, this is my community where I grew up, but I still think um, the, the fundamental intent is the same. And then it's something that I can then take back to, you know, um, you know, Dorsey and, and where I did grow up and, and have that same type of impact there. That's that's what's up, man. That's what's up. Yo, so before I, before I let you get out of here, uh, I got four questions I need to get uh, you to answer for me real quick. And the, the first of which is, you know, we grow up, pretty intense environments statistically like black black folks are disproportionately impoverished and black males disproportionately have to deal with um this like persistent threat of physical violence so a part of what comes with that then is the socialization of um having to lash out when problems come your way um but as we level up to use to use your phrasing 
you get to a point to where that is not your reality on a every single day basis. You know, it's not like when you were walking back and forth between a crip neighborhood and the blood neighborhood, having to be prepared, which is the perfect like example, right? Like that was your, it's not a metaphor. It was your actual day to day. You have to be prepared to defend yourself as you went back and forth and you made some choices to try and keep yourself as safe as possible. But there are times in which things might've gotten a little out of control. So with that, with that context, you've been socialized in a particular way that no longer is relevant to your day-to-day life, right? It's like, and losing, losing one's temper or being goaded into uh, a conflict or confrontation um, is not appropriate in polite society. So with that said, we'd love to hear a time in which someone has gone low and been you know, disrespectful or whatever it may be, and you chose to go high. And um, the fact that you went high was actually beneficial to you in the long run. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, and so I, I think, uh, I think what, what complicates the question for me is when I'm going high versus just going low right back at someone. <laughs> 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 um, but no, uh, I would say um, an experience that, that I actually thought about recently was um, at a previous company where, you know, I felt you know, a manager was trying to give me some informal feedback and, and I, you know, it was, it was, it was an interesting way that it was even set up because it wasn't formal um, at all, but this manager ultimately, you know, it was more, more personal feedback and the feedback was like, you know, I, I didn't, when I came into work, like I didn't smile enough and I didn't like, you know, Mm. I guess from her perspective, it was like, I didn't make, it didn't seem like I wanted to be there and I was therefore impacting her and how, and how is it making her feel? Mm. And I was like, well, you know, it, it struck me in a lot of different ways. And, um, because a, you know, you know, to make, you know, how I come into the office about her was, is one thing. And then like, she doesn't know about like my daily experiences or whether or not I'm walking through like negative 10 degree weather and I'm just upset or a particular day and I walk in not, you know, not smiling, whatever. But then she also um, proceeded to, you know, compare me to other people on the team and that how who are all white men do you know how and how I should quote unquote be more like them I'm not that's not what she said exactly but I just forget how it was actually presented to me but you know I felt that was pretty low right in, in terms of like making me feel um as a truly singled out member of the team and how my existence was impacting her um you know as a, as, as, a, as a white woman I just it, it sent me down a path that made me, um, you know, think about these things with a bit more context and perspective and also made me reach out to, um, you know, to other folks for, for perspective and, and to get their understanding because I would often deal with these things on my own, which I don't think is the way that anyone should approach this, especially um, with something that could impact you emotionally um, like th- like this did or, or 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 had the potential of doing so right and I think that was my high road in terms of how I ended out on on the better end of that and um, so being able just to have someone or like having the I think it's defined as a type of courage that I had to reach out to someone and say hey I need to you know vent a little bit and get your thoughts I, I just couldn't sit there and be pent up within myself and yeah um, on the on the flip side the one thing that I, I you know I, I somewhat you know am remiss about that situation is I never really said anything to that manager and I 
I just truly hope no one else, you know, has to go through anything like that. And, um, but, you know, it was a learning yeah. situation for me, but um, I think that's, that's, that's my example. Yeah. No, I, think, I mean, I think it's a great story too, because I mean, it's unfortunate you went through it, um, but it's, it's fortunate that you landed where you landed. I mean, because it's so loaded, right? Like telling like black people in general, black men in particular, you need to smile more. So you can make other people feel comfortable. It's like, it's like just my inherent being is a threat to you. And so I need, I need to do something to make you feel at ease. It's like, it's so loaded and just racist, you know, it's like to put that emotional burden on us. If you look at like the history of America's reason why we have all these uprisings that are going on right now is because there are people in our country who look at just our very nature and they get scared. Yeah. And they expect us to make them feel more at ease. And if, if they don't, then they get to threaten us. I mean, that's what, you know, that's why Amy Cooper's words were so powerful. She was like, I'm going to call the cops and say an African-American male is threatening my life. Everyone's going to believe in the boogeyman. Like when you say that, because people are, you know, they just roll out of bed scared of us. So um, I think that was a lot to put on you. But the thing that I, I guess not but, it's and the thing that uh, I find encouraging about that is you have the wherewithal to go talk with someone else to help you think through and process and like how to rise above it and move beyond it so that you're now not walking around kind of scarred and traumatized by this, the, the silliness of this person um, who at the time was your manager. Um, cool, man. So next, next question is if you were to describe your journey in one word, what would it be? <clears throat> yeah. Um, you know, I, I got to go back to, I guess more two words, but I got to go back to leveling up. Right. And I think, I think if I were to break that down even more, it's, it's, it's been about an evolution. So maybe it's evolution in terms mm. of, you know, each stage of my life, I've had to learn how to adapt and evolve. Um, especially if I wanted to progress and continue forward with my career or whatever, whatever it was that I was doing. And I, and I think a good analogy that I use for this is, you know, when you're, when you're running up a hill, right, you run up a hill, it's, it's, it's difficult. And it's probably one of the most strenuous things that you can do from a running perspective. You get to that peak um, and you're relieved that you made it with success. Um, but what happened with me, would, I would always continue to look up and there's always another hill to climb that I know that I can complete, that I know that I can, that I can accomplish. And so, um, and it's taking that evolution for me to, um, to have the belief in myself that I could do that. And I often ask myself a question in terms of, um, you know, have I done the greatest thing that I could, that I'll ever do. Right. And so I think Mm. that that has given me, um, you know, the mind frame to continue to evolve, to continue to do, um, you know, be motivated to do bigger and better things, uh, keep me moving forward. And so I think evolution is a, is a great, that's a description of my journey. That's awesome. I think, yeah, don't, don't, don't be stagnant, right? Like if you, or what is the, um, I heard it said before, like if you, if you think at 35, the way you did at 25, you've wasted 10 years, you know, mm-hmm. like that, that constant evolution. I, I, I appreciate it. Um, 
if you were to define success for yourself, everyone else doesn't have to agree with it. Everyone else doesn't have to live by it. Like, how are you managing your life to, to achieve success and happiness? Like, what is, what is your personal definition of success? Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, I, I think I look at it two ways. One is my ability to just the, the, the amount of freedom and that I have within my own power to do what I whenever I want. And so, and I think that's always been a bit limited, right? Cause you know, you need a job to pay bills and uh, you're kind of bound to that. And so um, my ability to, you know, re- you know, uh, retain and, and, and get some of that back to myself um, is something how I define def- define success, right? So when I pretty much started out in my career, right, everything was about work, work, work. And so now as I've progressed, I've been able to um, develop the skills um, and, the, and, I, and I want to say authority overall to reclaim some of the time and some of my life back to myself that I can then you know, spend more with my family and my hmm. friends and be more of an impact in that nature. And I think that's the second piece is the impact that I have on, you know, my friends, my family, my village overall. Yeah. So I think the two of those two is, is uh, combined is how I define success. Yeah. Being like uh, <laughs> Auntie Maxine Waters, who's from, <laughs> you know, representative from South Central L.A. I, I would like to reclaim my time. I, I respect it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the last question, man, before I let you get back to... Uh, wifey and a little one is um, there's a lot of baggage that comes with being black and being a black man. Like we're attacked sometimes, you know, especially grow up where we grew up. We, there are threats in our community. There are threats outside our community, wherever, wherever we went, there was no safe place. Actually, I remember talking to my homeboy Frank about uh, the last season of Atlanta um, the Childish Gambino show or Donald Glover show. Mm-hmm. And the whole the whole season, every episode was about like, it's just dangerous to be a black man. Like nowhere you went was like safe. And so that's a part of like the baggage that comes with being us is the world is a very dangerous place for us. But it's also dope being black. Like if I, if reincarnation was real and I got to have a choice, I would choose to be a black man 10 times out of 10. I wouldn't change it for anything in the world. So that said, what is it that you love most about being a black man? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I gotta go, I gotta go with, um, this, uh, the, uh, the, the unspoken acknowledgement that, that I share with other black men, especially like when I'm in a place, um, that I'm not familiar with. Right. And so, I could be out in a different state, you know, walk by someone and it's the head nod, right? And I think that's the, mm. uh, the, the, the primary illustration that it's used often in terms of how do you, how do you articulate and that the head nod is, is so powerful to me because it's, it's just, it's just, a, uh, you know, the unspoken communication that if something were to happen or something were to go down, you know, uh, you know, we're acknowledging each other, um, probably goodwill for each other during that situation. But, you know, I, I, I don't know how, you know, whether or not someone else would get involved or whatnot, but I know that this other person is not wishing me harm and that they are acknowledging me. And I think that's, that's super strong. And that was, um, you know, that was even more apparent to me when I started to do, to do more international travel. And I would walk by, you know, just, you know, you know, black folk out there. And like, of course, 
it's definitely not the same. And I, and I didn't really understand that because when I started my international travel, I was fairly young. And so well, when I wasn't receiving that acknowledgement, I, it just struck me even more of, of how much I appreciated it um, in the States. And so that's right. that's the, that's the shoot powerful me. And I think uh, even with you and I, right, there was a, and you may not remember this, but this is uh, when we first uh, met, we were at this, uh, we went to this, um, this, this club or this function or whatever with some other friends and, um, you and I were talking, so you were facing me. <laughs> yeah, I do. Re- <laughs> I do remember this. Yeah, and, uh, and our friends got into like a minor scuffle behind you. So you, of course, did not have any clue what was going on. But you know, in our conversation, you saw my face. Um, you know, I don't whatever gesture I made or whatever <laughs> the face, the look on my face that you read. You immediately knew what was going on, and I and I took off, and you and you immediately followed. And uh, you know, we of course handled our business, but. Um, you know, <laughs> you, we didn't know each other very well at that moment, but it was yeah. still like this unspoken communication that just worked out perfectly. And it was, you know, in support of each other and um, and our friends. And so I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that look, that look only meant one thing, <laughs> you know, like, it, it, you know, that's one of the views. But what comes to. <laughs> I try to be clear in my nonverbal communication. So, <laughs> yeah, and you were you were you were crystal clear. And it was like, yeah, like it's go time. Uh, but I think that that's what comes with, you know, a shared experience, right? And so when there's a shared experience, there's that there's an understanding and there's that sense of belonging that that comes. Because ultimately that's what I mean, we're we're social creatures, all human beings, right? Like we are pack animals and we want a sense of belonging. And I think what happens for us here, our lived experience here in the United States. Everywhere we go, matter of fact, I used, to, I used to say, you know, before this uprising um, has popped off, the only people who care about black people is some black people, mm. right? And it's like, I'm really encouraged by this recent uprising and other folks legitimately like caring and getting involved and, and you know, giving up their privilege um, to, to help with this Black Lives Matter movement. But I think one of the things that has happened historically is this this lived experience of everywhere we go, we are we're it is made clear that we don't belong in air quotes. Like the people do not want us there and they're not happy that we're there. So that when you when you see someone else from our community, you see another black person out and about, you know, you you give the head nod. Cause there and it and it provides that sense of belonging. Um and there's there's just a there's an understanding because we lived the same experience and not and the opposite side of that same coin is, you know, if you're hanging out with friends and the situation happens <laughs> behind you and you, you know, you see your new buddy make this face, the face only means one thing. So that, you know, you are, you are, you're speaking the same language and you can get each other's back. But man, look, I deeply, deeply appreciate you being willing to come on, on here or come on bootstraps and being able to share your story and walk us through like how you've gone from, you know, trying to find your way, you know, like in this world and trying to figure out what's the right mix of, is it, is it the Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, or is it track and football and the way in which you've leveled up and evolved into um, the amazing man that you are now. So it's greatly, greatly appreciated. Yeah, man. Happy to do it. Awesome. Awesome, man. Well, look, for all the listeners out there, I have a quick favor to ask. If you haven't subscribed to the show yet, Be sure to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you listen to this on right now. 
And if you're on Instagram, go on over and give us a follow at Bootstraps Podcast. Yo, Aaron, man, I'll talk to you soon, brother. Sounds good. Peace. Bye.